Coming up right now, my talk with Carl Reiner. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. It's an honor to be here. It's wonderful to meet you. So say you. All right. <laughs> oh, so, so arguing? No, <laughs> so, <laughs> no. I'm, I'm happy to be any place. You know, when you get to be 92, you're just happy that your brain is working enough so that you make sense of words that come into your head. And your impressions are so spot on. They used to be good. I used to, I was a young, every young comedian uses impressions to get into the, to put their foot in the door. Everybody wants to hear about the great stars and you give them a taste of it. I think more your generation than mine were very big on impressions, mm -hmm. comedians. Absolutely. You don't hear them now. There, there are only one or two really good impressionists around these days. Do you think it became a taboo or what do you think it is? I have no idea, Governor. <laughs> Really? <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. I also have no idea why people are so enamored of these rappers. And, and they, they don't say very much, but they say a lot. They use a lot of words to say nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and I would rather hear pencils. I'd rather hear a song with lyrics. I guess that's why not too many of them tweet. You don't see too many rappers on Twitter. I, I tweet a lot. I tweet every day. I enjoy your tweets. Oh, you do? Yes. That's good. Well, that's one of the things that tweet teaches you, to succinctness. Yeah. As a writer for so many years, is that a skill that you had already crafted before Twitter, I imagine? I guess, yes. I, I realized that I'm, I didn't even know I was a writer until I, the book started coming out. I mean, I, I think I became a writer because in the Army, I was separated from my wife for three, almost two, two and a half, three years, and we wrote every day. And I wrote four or five page letters a day. And once I wrote her 17 letters of six pages in one day. And that be, really, I think that's how I started to become a writer. Do you think emails nowadays have the same effect as letters or no? Not at all. So no, they're not as personal and not as long and there's not, you know, this, and it's not, <laughs> a, a phone call is better. See, I email my girlfriend all the time, but I don't think we, we have that strong of a, written connection as I would if we wrote actual letters. Try going to the dinner together. I'm working on it. Yes. I've been, I have a savings fund. <laughs> About three years from now, I ought to be able to take her to dinner. I enjoyed the poem you wrote in the book. You wrote a poem. Ode to the Buttocks Bountiful, yes. Yeah. It reminded me of Robbie Burns' Ode to a Mouse. <laughs> I don't know that. No? <laughs> no. You, you know Robert Burns? The, I know all uh, Robert You don't Burns. know? Oh, we sleek it current timorous beastie. Oh, what a panic in thy breasty. Oh, that's wonderful. Yanina run away sahisti, we bickerin brattle. I would be kissed to come and chase thee. That's about as much as I can remember. You, and you do it very well. You're a good performer. Oh, thank you. Well, going back to the book being called I Just Remembered, the follow-up to I Remember Me. By the way, I'm doing another book now. I'm about 40 pages into it. It's called um, What I Had Forgotten. <laughs> and I'm really 40 pages into it, and I have a, at least a dozen more chapters. I've written seven, eight, nine chapters. I imagine you could do many, many more of these. Well, you have to hang around to do them. Right. Yes. Well. 92, it's... I've, by the way, I worked my... <clears throat> you know, 92 is a, a long time, but not long enough, so I've decided to find out how many nanoseconds I've lived and how many nanoseconds... I will live till 90, 94. If I go at 94, how many nanoseconds I have, I have it written down. It's very interesting. And you picked 94 because of Estelle? Estelle left at 94, right. yes. And, and she was eight years older than me, so she's, this year's her hundredth, would have been her hundredth year. Right. I look at the, uh, every morning I, w I wake up and I watch, I, first thing I read is the obits to see what age people are going in. 
whether they're and they're mostly younger than I am. Today there were a couple of hundred year olds. That was very heartening. Right. Do you think if the ages just got higher and higher, you'd have more and more hope? Is that what you're? Yes, you do. Absolutely. Well, you know the the mean age during the Middle Ages was forty years old, forty two, forty three, mm-hmm. and we've got it up to around seventy or eighty now. How, if you could live to be any age, how old would you want to live? Uh, as long as I'm f- functioning mentally, I think it'd be all right. Once things start to hurt, and you and you have trouble maneuvering, if you fall down a lot, you know. But once your while your brain is working, it seems you want to hang around. And when there are good programs to be seen still on television, to, tonight there are a couple I want to see. So as long as TV is good and the mind is working. Tonight, um, I just taped it. I just uh, TV-wrote it. My favorite performer of all, one of my all-time performers, Audra McDonald, is on Letterman tonight. And I'm just hoping she does a piece from her new thing about Billie Holiday. My wife was enamored of Billie Holiday. And I have a piece in my book about Billie I think it's in this book. Oh yes. Yes, yes. You, how do you know? I read the book. Oh, you read the. Oh, you. That's right. You did. Yeah, that's it. Is in this book. You know what I liked? Uh, you, you mentioned that you picked up a fascination for Irish music. Yes, I'll sing a song for you if you like. Oh, I'd love it. Right, so right now, when I was about eight or nine years old, my father had a friend named Max Kalfas. He was a German Jewish gentleman. And he had a brother called John Calvin, who sang on WRA radio in New York every Saturday. He had a 15-minute show, and he'd say, and here's a song me mother taught me when I was in me mother's knee, and he'd sing an Irish song. And I loved those songs. And one of the first songs I remember is Tumble Down Shack and Athlone. And I said to my father, I want to be an Irish tenor. He said, well, you can't. You were Jewish. I said, but he's an Irish tenor, and his his is you can be an, a Jewish singer singing Irish songs, so that's what I hope to become someday. I'm a long way from home, and it's there that I'd roam to Lolaren far over the sea. Oh, me heart, it is there where the skies are so fair, and Lolaren is calling me. There are eyes that are sad as they watch for the lad. From the tumble down shack in Athlone, and I pray for the day I'll be sailing away to all island, me mother, me home. Oh, I want to go back to that tumble down shack where the bright roses bloom round the door, just to pillow me head on me old trundle bed, just to hear me dear mother once more. There's a bright guiding light guiding me home tonight down the long road of white cobblestone down the road that leads back to that tumble-down shack to that tumble-down shack in Athlone all right that's beautiful see that you know that i brought it up because we have this in common when i was a kid i said the same thing to my dad (laughs) i'm not kidding i I thought it was a very interesting connection that we shared i also wanted to be an irish tenor well you know there was that particular song by the way was sung by almost everybody in the world starting with john mccormick way back going to bing crosby everybody recorded that song well you did a beautiful rendition hey thank you yeah, I used to listen to the Clancy Brothers and memorize the... Uh, oh, really? Do you want to hear one? Yes. All right. There was Johnny Muckledoo and McGee and me and a couple or two or three went to spree one day. We had a bup or two which we knew out of blue and a beer and whiskey flew and we all felt gay. We visited McCann's, McLemans, Humpty Dance. We then went into Swans, our stomachs were to pack. We ordered out a feed, which indeed we did need. And we finished it with speed, but we still felt slack. Johnny McAldoo turned a red, white, and blue as a plate of Irish stew he soon put out of sight. He shouted out in core with a roar for some more that he'd never felt before such a keen appetite. 
He ordered eggs and ham, bread and jam, what a cram. Him we couldn't charm, though we tried to level best, for no matter what they brought, cold or hot, matter not. Went down him like a shot, and he still stood the test. Swallowed, tried and lard, by the yard we get scarred. We thought to make a hard when the waiter brought the bill. He told him to give ore, but he swore he could lower twice as much again and more before he'd had his fill. He nearly slipped a trough full of broths, and McGrath filled devour the tablecloth if he'd own all him in. When the waiter brought the charge, McLeodoo felt so large. He began to scalds and barge, and his blood went in fire. He began to curse and swear, tear his hair in despair, and to finish the affair, called the shopman a liar. Shopman he threw out, and no doubt he'd a cladle meckle do, he kicked about like an old football. Tarted up his clothes, broke his nose, I suppose, he'd a killed him in a few blows in no time at all. Meckle do began to howl and to growl by me soul. He threw an empty ball at the shopkeeper's head. He hit poor Mickey Finn, peeled the skin from his chin, and a rupture did begin, and we all fought and bled. The peelers did arrive, man alive for a five, and thus it made a drive for us all to march away. We paid for all the meat that we ate, stood a trait, and went home to ruminate on the spree that day. Now that is one beautiful rendition of a song I've never heard before. You win hands down. You win first prize, and I got ninth. You know what I realized? In a period, and only two of us are competing. Well, no, I think you win first prize, but mm. I, I'll tell you what. No, that was brilliantly done, brilliantly done. I realized that there's no other use for me knowing that song in my whole life. It had to serve a purpose that I'd remembered it. And all these years have gone by, and it's never served me any purpose until I realized Carl Reiner and I both share an affinity for this. You know, I, I had a chat with uh, Ferguson on the show, and I was saying that uh, there was a whole thing about my one of my favorite human beings that ever lived was Pete Seeger, mm -hmm. a great, great, great man. I met him in Hawaii once, and we were talking about folk songs. He, he sang for 100,000 people, and he, make, he got them all to sing along. He gave them the lyrics, and they sang them back. And it was, it was thrilling. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And we're talking about folk songs. He says, you know, a lot of folk songs are mainly the, uh, the ones from the little towns. He says, guys used to get together. They're all bawdy. He's they're very bawdy. And he sang me one of the bawdiest songs I've ever heard, The Ball of Bellamore. Have you ever heard? No. I told... Ferguson about that, and he says, oh, you can't sing that on this show. Oh, no, you can't. <laughs> but he forced me to sing it so he could say, don't sing that, don't sing that. And I sang it up to the the, the rhymes, but the rhymes were so dirty that you you don't have to say what the rhyme was. You knew what it was. Uh -huh. It's going to be the dirtiest thing ever. Right. Can I get a piece? Uh, certainly. I'll give you a piece, but I won't go to the rhymes. They are ladies' press. <laughs> Oh, have you heard the story of the ball of Bellamore? Four and twenty prostitutes lying on the floor singing, Who'll do you this time? Who'll do you new? The man who did you last time, he cannot do you new. The old fat maiden, she was there, she was in a state of fits, swinging from the chandelier and landing on her ping doodly bing. <laughs> anyway, it goes like that. There are four more lyrics like that. Wor each get worse and worse and worse. There was screwing in, uh, there was fucking nice, uh, in the parlor and fucking in the sticks. You can hardly hear the music for the swishing of that man. <laughs> I know he was, but he forced me to sing it, and he kept saying, "Don't do that." Right, right. And, but it was. I can't wait to see if he puts that on the air, or he just did it for a studio audience. How many late night show appearances do you think you've done in your lifetime? Ninety-one thousand six hundred seventy-four. Wow, you have it. Right. Yes. <laughs> Right down to the... Wait, 65. I just remembered I did one on Tavis Smiley, which is coming on this Friday. Well, what's the trick to being great on these talk shows? Be yourself. Don't try to be anybody else or be a good impersonator. <laughs> you know, I you have something worth selling, so you're there for a purpose, usually. Um, I remember going on Carson a few times and having nothing to sell. Just for he needed somebody calling. I said, I have nothing to sell. Come on anyway, he said. Do you get nerves when you go on TV? Not really. Did you ever? Yeah, the proper proper amount of nerves. Yeah, you just worry that you you don't trip or something. But no, when you when you go on with people you who you trust, you know they're going to ask you the. It's when you go on with somebody who doesn't know how to interview that it makes it tough. Then you just take it over and go. Right. You never get self-conscious. Only if my fly is open, <laughs> and they find out later. Yeah. You know, I, when I'm on stage, I always get paranoid my fly is open. At some point when I'm on stage, I'm not kidding you. Almost every time I've done a show where it's like an hour-long show, <laughs> at some point in the show, I'm thinking, I hope my fly is not open. <laughs> <laughs> That's why, why is it going so well? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you see where they, the, 
what, look at the people's eyes. See if their eyes are on your forehead or they're on your crotch. It's a good trick. Yes. What if if they're moving around? Then you <laughs> you got to be more interesting yeah. than the fly. You know, if if I'm more interesting than an open fly, then I'm really good. <laughs> I think that's the trick, maybe, to being the best comedian. Yes. You got to go up with an open fly every time till you get so strong that the people can only focus on you and not the fly. Yeah, that's right. If you're the, if you have an open fly and you can keep them looking at your face, you're really a great comedian. That's got to be the secret yeah, to it absolutely. all. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you, you brought up the, the song on Ferguson reminded me of a great story in your book, which was the girl who couldn't tell, couldn't pronounce her own name. Yes, true story. Uh, I, I met her at a, a USO um, gathering in Washington, D.C. I just was going to Georgetown to learn to be a French interpreter. So I met her, at, and she was the first one at the dance, and I was one of the first guys there. She came over to me, and she said her name. She said, hi, she said, my name is Joyce Van, and so she had a middle name, Joyce Jessica Kunz, she said. <laughs> and I said, uh, just a minute, she repeated it, what's yours? And I said, Carl Reiner, and she said, Carl Reiner, and she spoke such a thick act, beautiful girl wearing a beautiful dress, long blonde hair, and very, very sweet. And you could see she was a naive, naive person. And I said, I said, how are you spelling that name? She says, how it's pronounced, K-U-N-T-Z. I says, ah, I says, I'm, I'm, I'm German extraction. My father spoke German. I says, that's, in German, that's pronounced Kunz. She, that's silly. It's that, no, it's Kunz. Which was a very, very soft way of telling her. I thought that was very... Really, yeah, and I, and, but I was really serious about it. I wasn't trying to fool her. As you know something, and I, I was serious, I said... If you pronounce the way you're, you're pronouncing it, most of the people are going to take it to mean the female, the sexual female, the female sex organ. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, that silliest thing I ever heard, you know. <laughs> and she wouldn't, and my friend came over, Saul Pomerantz came over to say hello, and she introduced herself as Joyce Kuntz. And he said, he, he punched me, so, you know, he thought I put <laughs> yeah, her yeah, up yeah, to yeah. it. And we, the two of us, really, for the rest of the afternoon, or for a good part of it, we convinced her, to t uh, we, and we taught her how to say kunz. Right. We said, you're going to get a lot of people giggling at you, and, and, the, and the reason they're giggling is they think you're saying vagina. You, you definitely have a part of you that you want to help. You, you really, I see it in a lot of your stories, is that you do really truly want to help people. The yeah. guy with the comb over was another good story. Yeah, that's right. Well, two guys, Neil Simon, I thought that was fantastic yeah, that you, yeah. you cut off his comb over. Yeah, that's right. No, that was, that was uh, to, 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 for those who don't know what we're talking about, uh, I have a picture in the book of uh, General MacArthur who had the best comb over. Comb over means you part, the, you part your hair near, near your ear. Right. And if you have hair that really should be cut off, you comb it over to make it look like you're covering the bald spot. Right. And I, this young writer was, I was doing the Van Dyke show at the time and looking for writers to help me. And this young writer submitted one of his, and I said, I can't read your script. He said, why not? I said, because I don't trust you. He said, why don't you trust me? Right. You don't know me. He's me, I, but I'm looking at your hair. That your hair is, you comb over, your, your, it's a fake, you know. Yeah. You're probably, you're trying to hide your baldness, and instead of looking at your face, I'm looking at your hairline. Mm -hmm. Can't look at you. So he said, what are you talking, and I, I, I had a, I got a scissor from Mac at the uh, uh, Harry Kalshan, I was my agent in the Morris office. I had, had a comb, and I cut his hair, and I, and he 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 looked at he looked. Everybody said you look much better, all of them. And he looked at himself. Hey, this isn't bad. And I listened to his script was no good, but his hair was better. <laughs> so and you did it, read the script and after that. A couple of years later, yeah. at the uh, Sid Caesar, uh, uh, we got two writers, the the Simon brothers. Doc Simon, which is Neil Simon, was doing a comb over. He was very young, but he was had sparse hair. And I did the same thing for him in Max Liebman's office. I gave him a comb over. Right. And his wife said, oh, this is so much nicer. You don't have and the same thing. And I, I say I contributed to his, to his uh, success as uh, one of the probably the greatest writer in, in, our, in our country of plays, yeah. playwright. It could be because of the haircut. Maybe I, he no would have been dismissed otherwise. No question about it.
they looked at his plays instead of his hair. You mentioned in your first book your relationship with the toupees. Yes. That you used to have the toupee, so it's like an ongoing theme, the hair. Yes, I well, I never uh, actually, uh, I always wore, didn't, I never wore a toupee when I went in a normal living. And I remember meeting uh, Frederick Murray, who wore a toupee all the time, and he says, you're not wearing a toupee, how do you decide when to wear it? I said, well, it's, a, it's like a tuxedo, you only want to get dressed up. If you want to be fully dressed and make an impression of right. handsomeness, you wore a toupee. I said, and I never wear it if there's less than a thousand people. I said, if, right, right. if I go to an event and there's a few hundred people, I won't wear it. And I always made a big point of where when I wore it. I would say, I'm wearing my toupee tonight. It's an important event, you know, because I was n never wanted people to look at my head. And I said it in the book, people say, is that a toupee you're wearing? You'd say, yes. And they say, you know, you can, you can never tell. You can't know. Right. It is unfair to make <laughs> yeah. people stand there and wonder. It's yeah. the same. Maybe yeah. the comb over is more honest than the person with a toupee that doesn't let you know. Yes, right. You know, it's it's interesting because my generation, you don't see toupees. No, you don't. And, I'm, and you never see comb overs. So I think there are... Definitely people like you that made yeah. a stand at some point yeah. in, in history and said, yes. we're going to be bald, and, and that's and that's cool. I, I put Larry David in the group. Oh, yes, absolutely. Fighters for the bald community. <laughs> yes, be honest. Because now people are, are happy to be bald. So I think... I think you changed uh, and, the world. And maybe that maybe we're talking to one last holdout who still has his hand right on his head right now as we're talking. <laughs> Not me. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, so many of your memories are in my head now. Oh, that, that. With the transfer of you know through <laughs> the books, I feel like I've gotten to also live your life. I well, feel like I really know you. You don't know me. It's unfair. You know, Mel, who sits there every night almost, right there, mm -hmm. he says, you know, I've written like five or six, I, I don't know how many books I've written, five, six, seven. I wrote only one novel, which was called um, All Kinds of Love. And I've written, but they're all bio biographical. I've written, I write, a, and I realize it's the easiest thing to write about. You don't have to research it. It's there. And the things pop in your head. Why is it so important to you to preserve these memories? It's not important. It's just fun. It's just for fun? Yeah, yeah, fun. I don't think it's important. No? It, it's important. It is important in the sense that I once discovered not too long ago that I'm a really the world's um, the world's MC. I'm a master of ceremonies at heart. I've been able to do it since I'm 18, 17, 18 years old when I went away to the mountains. I was able to do game shows and introduce people without even, with no script. I would just get out there and be funny. Mm -hmm. And I get, I never have anything prepared. I just get up and it's a gift that I have. And it's being an MC is pointing to people and saying, here, look at this guy. You're gonna really enjoy it. I, Steve Allen was the biggest one for that. He loved getting to point to people and say, look at this guy, look what he does. I've done that all my life, and I've done it very comfortably without ever... I never have to prepare. I, I never do prepare. If I prepare, it's going to come out stilted. So having read both of your books, and I try to figure out, as any young comedian would, what, what makes somebody successful? What makes somebody successful in life? not just in comedy. And what struck me from your books is your ability to think very quickly on your feet. It helps, yes, it helps. Uh, and, you, and, and the same thing happens in front of the typewriter. You're thinking on your keyboard very quickly, and you're changing all the time. <laughs> it's, you never fin somebody says you never finish a, an art project, you, you stop. Right. That's right. I, and I today I was ready to type. I said, wait, this, and I fixed, and I really improved it. There's no question about him making improvements, but you can keep improving forever. The thing that strikes me as the best example is in your first book when you talked about the FBI interrogating you oh, yes. as a communist. Yes, yes. And how quick and sharp you were with your responses. Well, I decided right away. I was. They were charming, and I said, I'm going to out charm them. I want to, if they, you, if they have nothing to lean against, if they're pushing against you and you're pushing back, they'll push harder. So you wish you fall over together. So I, I was reading that and I was thinking, what if I was in that situation? I imagine I would be, there would be fear. 
Well, so it there, seemed there, like you there were... There was definitely fear, but there's also the, a very good actor. I was acting fearless. You were acting fearless, yeah. but you were fear, of fearful course, inside. Of course, of course. In the back of my head, I said, my God, everything can go down. It was the McCarthy era. Sure. They were looking for communists, and there was a, it all started with a, a, a grocer up in New York, Rye, New York is a place, looking for communists everywhere. I hear people talk about how now with the NSA listening in on phone calls and, and everything, it's becoming like that again. As somebody who's been through it, do you think that's true? Well, unless they use it, uh, everybody knows what everybody's doing with it. My God, uh, your phones, uh, it's, unless somebody uses it nefariously, it doesn't matter. I don't care if they know what they know about me. You don't think we're heading to another time like that? I don't think so. I think it's so open that it's going to be... Yeah, they will use pieces of information badly. You know, the right wing has been doing it all the time. They get a piece of almost information. John Stewart, God bless him, he puts it right out there so perfectly. And Colbert, the two guys, before and Rachel Maddow, there are certain people who know how to tell you what the truth is. The Fox Network makes up facts and then they they act on them. They continue to act on facts they've made up. That's why I love Mark Twain. <laughs> Put it all out there for everybody. He was the best ever. What about him specifically? Well, he covered every subject in the world that was worth covering. And uh, as a matter of fact, he, in the, 50 years after he died, they published a thing called Letters from the Earth that was not allowed to be published then because it was blasphemous. And his wife or somebody kept, and they said it, was, no, it won't be published till 50 years later. They published it, and it, somebody asked me to read it, uh, you know, tape it. And I, it was one of the proudest things I've ever done. It doesn't sound like me. It doesn't, it was nothing, it was the best acting I've ever done. It was be, because I really morphed into Mark Twain. I was on This Is Your Life once, and they wanted to know what they, they asked my wife, what did she give me, what kind of car? She said, he has a car. What's he like? She says, Mark Twain. So they gave me a signed copy. One of the books actually has his original manuscript pasted into the book. Wonderful. And 100, you know, 50 books. So he's, he's the, the guy. What sets him apart for you about from all the other writers? What's he doing that they didn't do? Such honesty and such humor, my gosh. I mean, if you're going to read one book in your life, read Huckleberry Finn, somebody once said. And the other one is uh, the, uh, uh, King Arthur, uh, Yankin, King Arthur, Yankin, King and Oh, yes, King I've Arthur. read that one. Yeah, that one has everything in it. If you want to know about... What makes societies and governments tick? That's in it. I mean, for all time, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And he wrote a thing called "What Is Man," a little short book. What is man? And he, this, I never even thought. He says, "What is selflessness? What is selfishness? And what is selflessness?" He says, "Everybody fixes it. They're selfless." He says, "Everybody is selfish. There's very little selflessness." He said, well, what about the selfless act? He says, like, uh, if somebody uh, saw a little kid fall in the water and you jump in to save somebody's life, isn't that selfless? No, that's selfish. You would not be able to live with yourself ah. if you not didn't do that. There are certain things you do because you know you can't live with yourself if you didn't do them, if you didn't help a, a person in need. And his selflessness really exists. So there is no truly selfless person, uh, actor, person. He, that's what he's saying. You know, and I, it's, a, it's a small book. What is man? It's worth three. Man, he told man, he talks to man. You know, man, God, God, man. He's like, oh, God and man or whatever. Yeah, it seems, this seems like a perfect transition into philosophy since that's basically what we're talking about anyway. So the philosopher that I have chosen for you is somebody I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm not. Okay, well then forget because it. Because I haven't read many books on philosophy. Well, do you know about Moses Maimonides? I've heard of him. He's the the uh, the, the big guru of the of the of our sect. Right. Yes. What did he say? The, the Rambam. Rambam. He said yeah. a lot of things. I that I knew. I knew about the Rambam. I, <laughs> right, right. I don't know what he said. Uh, maybe I'll know the quote you're going to get. Um, well, I'll tell you why we chose him for you. Okay. Uh, we chose him because 
of your famous record with Mel Brooks, the 2,000-year-old <laughs> yeah. man. Right, right. And I uh, figured you're half the record. All right. Maimonides is a thousand years old. That's a thousand each. So I'll give you a thousand-year-old philosopher. Okay. Half a two-thousand-year-old man. Maimonides was born in 1135 and lived to 1204, 69 years, and he lived in Cairo, Egypt. Maimonides thinks that our minds are the tool to find truth, but we must accept that they are flawed tools. For example, let's examine proving the existence of God. Maimonides is a proponent of negative theory, meaning we describe God based on what he isn't. He never dies. He is not confined to one form. If we attempt to describe God by what he is, eternal, we are putting our finite vision on an infinite thing and hence doing it injustice. Well, first of all, I'll discuss with you your thoughts on God. Cause I, well, you know, I think uh, I've got my mind at his beat. i got to figure it out. Oh, yeah? Yes. A long time ago, I'm under confirmed... I died in the wall atheist. I know I'm an atheist. And and when people say, How can you be an atheist? I says, Well, let's take God. I said, You are God. Man is God. Human beings have invented God because they needed him. I says, every thought ever done is done by man. Nobody put the thought in your head. You had the thought. Very lo a long, long time ago, I said, when Moses went up the side of the mountain, and uh, there was always smart men in society. One smart guy, a little smarter than everybody else. And, I, and, and somebody gave this example once, and I never forgot it. They said during the, um, the uh, Neanderthal days, human beings did not know from whence came children. Where did children come from? How did they come? How did they get? It took a very smart Neanderthal to put together the sex act and the birth act. They were months apart, nine months apart. Nobody ever said, if you do that, this happens. They didn't know it. One smart guy said, hey, this guy never did that and he never had that. So maybe that's. And one, it's always one man who figured out something. There's always one brighter person. It has been throughout centuries. You know, we have. Uh, uh, you know, Freud and Marx and Christ and people who thought Moses went up on the hill, and I'm, I'm sure this is absolutely true. The synchronistic thing of a lightning striking when he's getting these ideas, I really think there was a thunderbolt when he was writing down these things, but those were his ideas. Thou shalt not, uh, you know, uh, covet thy neighbor's wife, thou shalt and, and I said, those things were put down, and when he came down, he said, look at the ideas I came down with. They said, who are you? He's look at the ideas I came down that God has given me to give you because a flash of lightning came. And I said, so man needed God because he, there were things happening. They had nothing to know. They, you know, they used to pray to rocks. They prayed to a conch shell. They, they picked them. Before they had a they got monotheism, they prayed to many gods. They had you know, crazy looking statues they were praying to. Do you think that means there's a need for prayer? It, it's the need to know, and they don't know how to, uh, who will answer their, their really profound questions. Where did I come from? How did I get here? What are we doing here? And I said, man is God. He has figured it out. My God, he, the things he's figured it out. I would, we are now living to 80, 90 years old because we know how to kill diseases that used to kill you like this in the desert. My God. He, he, you know, and people got smart very very early on, I said, you know, that my father used to tell me about the, one of the Jew, traditions in Jewish uh, culture is when you cut your fingernails, you burn them. You put them in a thing and burn them. I said, well, where did that come from? He says, in the desert. You know, he said, um, a lot of dirt on the fingernails. The more, and they, they said, mazikum. Devils are in dirt under the fingernails, so they got to get rid of them. Otherwise, you'll get sick. They knew about, figured out there was a, an unseen thing called mazikum, germs. A man, very way early back, man is smart. Then they figured out they got telescopes. They invented microscopes and telescopes and all those things. So man is very, very smart, and he needed God. And I say those who, who, who use God, who doesn't exist, as uh, for comfort, I said, it's all well and good. I think. Whatever gives you comfort. You, you pray to something that's not there, but that's all right. What do you use for comfort? The fact that I know there's no God and I have to do it myself. 
You'll do it yourself. You, go, you, you have something bothering you with your foot, you go to a foot doctor. Your brain can't figure something out. There's a guy, thing called Freud who invented psychiatry who has now been proven that it's way, he was way off base in some things. They have a lot of improvements on him, including a guy named Bion who came lately. And I have a daughter who just wrote a, Beyond Beyond, she wrote a book. She's a psychoanalyst, and she has written about the, what, how the mind works and what what it does to the body, and it's an extraordinary piece of work. So, but it's a person. It's a, I know she's a person because my daughter. Have you ever prayed? No, never. Oh, well, yeah, sure. Yeah, but you pray to yourself, you know. Oh, come on, let's just. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. I don't. It's not. I'm not praying to anything. You're hoping. That's yeah. what it is. Your hope. You're hoping that this works out. Well, what, going back to the idea with the Jews, I always think about this as a Jew. What, why do you think we've been persecuted so, so much? I have no idea. Uh, but you know something? Uh, people who don't have much sometimes elevate themselves by pe- making somebody lower than them. Making somebody a scapegoat for your... in in in. In abilities, saying they they they're terrible. I think that's it. And because they were, they were literate. I think they were very upset that they were literate and did things a lot that the pagans couldn't do. <laughs> but they, they, but they weren't weren't warring. They weren't warlike at one point. At one point they were. You know they were, they did uh, do conquer and battle. And what was it? The uh, Philistines and any sure the King David times. Yeah, we had a, we had a few good war years. Yes, there. absolutely. Uh, having fought in World War II, you must have thought about this quite a bit over the years, right? Oh, well, my God, that was uh, the fact that that a, a, a whole billions, millions of people could accept a, a, a maniac that Goebbels or Goering, Goebbels figured out a, a way to get all the people in the country together, united by hating something, <laughs> and they pick on the Jews who were... <laughs> rife for rating at the time because uh, of they were different, you know, anybody. Anyway, so that was the thing I will never, ever understand why all those people went along with it, and I never forgive them for that. For, and and, and, and I, I praise those people. There was a book that just came out, I just ordered it, about a guy who was writing about against Hitler for years and years in Germany. A new book. It's been one of the biggest books in Europe for hundreds of dozens of years. It just came here. I just ordered it. I forgot the name of it. Anyway. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I I grew up, I was sent to yeshiva, so I grew up very religious <clears throat> and moved away from it. Now I moved back towards it. I think, I believe that belief in God is something that's either instilled in you when you're young or not. It's true. My father didn't go to shul or synagogue. He believed in God, but he didn't go to synagogue. And my friends all went to synagogue, and the only reason I went is to not be alone on the high holidays. I went with them. We didn't have to pay in those days. But I, I never took it seriously. Do you think there's any value to any of it, the traditions or anything? Oh, traditions are always... If the traditions have good things in them, sure they're good, you know. The tradition of getting together for dinner for 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 family to get to dinner, force them to get to get dinner during seder, that's lovely. Yeah. But to to pray to somebody who doesn't even exist is you know, is pray. Look unto yourself. Look until I know self be true, and you'll be okay. The organized religion. And my first thing that comes to my mind is the Catholic Church, which they really know how to organize. My wife and I went to Mexico City one day, and we went to Guadalajara to saw that absolutely magnificent temple. We were on the Day of Ascension when people were crawling on their hands and knees to give alms to the church. These poor people, the dragged people in, in tatters with their knees bleeding, crawling the last mile to the church with an with a little token of money which they laid on the the church's step. And I'm saying, and I'm looking at this gold door, and I'm saying, there it is. There's what you. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That the Pope is. is walking around with, with these gold shoes and a gold hat, and th- millions of people are praying to him. And what do they get back? They get back, peace. Right. I mean, we'll give you peace, eternal peace. 
So you never believed in your whole life? No. Even as a kid? And a kid, I probably did. I mean, I, because I, I went to show him, I, I know I probably didn't. No, I, my father said he did, so I guess I did. Well, I'm going to keep reading the Maimonides stuff. Yeah, we okay. Can keep, we can okay. keep analyzing it. There is one disease which is widespread and from which men rarely escape. The disease varies in degree in different men. I refer to this, that every person thinks his mind more clever and more learned than it is. I have found that this disease has attacked many an intelligent person. They express themselves not only upon the science with which they are familiar, but upon other sciences about which they know nothing. If met with applause, so does this disease itself become aggravated. Just because somebody thinks they're, they're smart, it doesn't mean they're smart. I mean, you can be educated, but not inventive smart. And those people kid themselves when they think that they, because they have learned all the things they were taught to learn, they, they had, a, they had a, a way of digesting stuff that was invented by somebody else, and, 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 they, and they learned it. And they became doctors. They became lawyers, judges. But people who think clearly about things innovatively, Mm-hmm. Those are the those are those are, those are the real thinkers. Those are the real, and most people, ordinary people, can have that and never be uh, never be lauded as doctors. You know, right? I think there's a difference. Common be- sense between being clever and being intelligent, and being intelligent. And being educated. You can be you can be clever, and you don't. You, you can be educated and be very dumb too. Uh, give me an example. Well, learning things by rote. Really understanding what makes people tick, what makes things tick—it's a rare, it's a rare gift, and some some people, some people who have degrees have that, but most people don't. I don't think. Do you think the older you get, the more you understand? If you understood it a little at the beginning, you will, and continue on that path. If you never understood, you will never understand, and you will think you understand, and make fun of people who think they understand. Right. So, so you have to have something to build on. Anyway. <laughs> Are you still as young in your mind as you were? I think so. I think so because I'm able to come up with things that uh, are new for me. And so uh, at 92, if, uh, if I can do that, I will stay around as long as that keeps going. What about marriage? In this business of comedy, so many fail and... How do you balance a, a brilliant career in show business like you did at a, and a good relationship? Is there a trick to that? Yeah, sure there is a trick. My wife, you once said it. Somebody asked of her, right there, sitting there, what makes a, a good marriage? She says, how do, you, how do you live so long? She said, she says, marry someone who can stand you. <laughs> now you can stand. Who can stand you? If you can stand all the little peccadillos, you don't leave. You hang out if it's here, right? And you hang in there because you marry that person for a reason in the first place, and you forget it sometimes because so many things come, come into the mix, um, positive and negative things. But uh, where are you going? If you if you get divorced, you'll only do it again. You make the same mistake twice. Now we were married for sixty five years and. And uh, it was, they were great, great careers. Uh, to this day, I, I say, I made a little adage in one of the books you noticed, the new adage, which is 70 is the new 65. When people ask me how long I've been married, I say 65. And one day it occurred to me, is wait, my wife was married 65 years, but I'm still married. She's still within me. I think of her all the time. So I'm married 70 years. So I'm saying that's the new adage, 70 is the new 65. And sadly, uh, you can apply, uh, you can change it to 50 is the new 45, or sadly, 12 is the new seven, you know, depending on how long right. you stay married before one passes on. As I get older, I, I feel like time moves faster. Does it does, no question about it. So at 92, it, does it continue to <laughs> no, move? No, I think it's slowing down. No, <laughs> it doesn't, no, it doesn't, I, I don't think it moves faster. I'm moving slower, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I really move slower, and I'm very aware of it when I walk around a block, very aware of it. I, I found it fascinating in your book how you talked so much about 
how you think about your own mortality. One one line in your book that made me laugh out loud was the idea that the mortician would admire your toenails. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. I was when I used to run around the track at Beverly Hills High, I was running a mile a day for every day. And I had fine-looking toenails, and all of a sudden, they got, <laughs> I got ingrown, and they were. I had to go to the podiatrist, and, and he says, "Wait a second. He says, "What happened?" He says, "I said I'm wearing. Is you wearing the wrong size shoe?" I said, "I'm wearing a ten, which is my size." He says, right. "Ten and a half is your size. You're banging up against the shoe when you run." So I got a bigger shoe, and he gave me something to to put on the nail. It took years. Till they straighten out again. So both nails look good, and I put this little stuff on it, but I have shoes that fit. So I said, they look perfect, and I took pictures of it. I said, well, someday a mortician is going to say, look at the 92-year-old man, or 95, whatever. Yeah. He's got very young nails. Hopefully he's as attentive to detail as you are. I right? says, well, if he reads this, if he gets a chance to read the book, he'll find out how he can have a young nail. <laughs> yeah. I think any time, if, if I was a mortician, Anytime I had someone die who had a book out about their life, I'd want to, I'd want to read it before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but also, you're a comedian. You pick apart the little things. I don't know that most people do that. I don't know that most people would pay attention to the toenails. Yeah. If a comedian was, was taking care of the body, almost 100% they would yeah, say. Yeah, you, you think about everything. Why do you think we do that as comedians? Why do we observe uh, that's, such... That's why people... Enjoy comedians because they do notice the things that people would have noticed, did notice, but didn't take note of. You know, they've been passing by, but they and you you point it and they start thinking about, oh my God, I have the same thing, and I and they laugh, they laugh in recognition mm-hmm. that, that you're talking about them, talking right. about their relation to their wife, their relation to their kids. What if we were just called noticers instead of no, comedians? Yeah, noticers, right. Well, this next noticer, he notices a lot. You're going to love this guy. <laughs> yeah. Nothing gets past him. Yes. Well, what, talking about the big questions that you say people invent God to answer these big questions, what do you make of them? What do you think is the purpose of life? What do you think? That's the point. The purpose of life, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is not to foul not to foul uh, the atmosphere or uh, to send nourishing people into the world, bring children into the world with a good sense of values that do not impress, uh, oppress other people, just are good, good people and by, by example make, make for a better world. For the sake of discussion, I'll, I'll ask you why. Why is it important to have a good world? Well, <laughs> the, we are we are we have only we have one planet, and the way we don't. Think, <laughs> I'm thinking about the guy who reads about says the the planet is doomed to doomed to to die within nine million years, uh, or nine billion whatever nine billion years. Right. And he says, did he? What did he say? He said nine billion. Oh, I thought he said nine million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why we think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you make of death? What do you think? Death is uh, it's it's going into the the best sound sleep you've ever had, where you really sleep and you wake up in the morning. You don't have a ha- you've had no dreams. It just comes and you fall asleep and that's it. There's nothing. I really think there's a part of you that's very poetic, not just the the one about Lois, but there, <laughs> there's definitely a. A poetry to the way you write. One line from your book that that stuck with me I, that I thought was particularly poetic was, I'm happy every day that I have a shadow. <laughs> yeah, well, because, yeah, I was leaning on the wall and I saw my shadow. And I said, oh, if you have a shadow, you're alive, you know. You always look for signs of of life in, in, in your aging body. Yeah. The, uh, the, um, yeah, I have a whole slew of uh, uh, indications you're on your way out, yeah. You're checking out, you Yeah, say. checking out, yeah. I like that one. Yeah. I, I, we've talked on the show before about uh, Carlin and the euphemisms, the yeah. passing away. Yeah. Checking out's a good one. Yeah. Checking out. I, I have a, not, I, a chapter I love the title of Checkups or Lay Checkouts. Because mm-hmm. one day I found out I had 
and just accidentally I had uh, appointments with three or four, four or five doctors. They're all right. accidental. One was a hearing doctor, one was a right. foot doctor, one was a and for my ear something. But there was a, just a, accidentally I saw it in my book. I said, "How did they all come on one day?" So and I realized, but the more times you check up, you check out, you're probably putting years onto your life. So check ups, allay check outs. That was a good title chapter. Yeah, I like that one and how you got. Nine, nine in and two days. I and think. the interesting thing is I could never think of the word allay after that. I was saying, what the hell's the name of that chapter? I, can't, I never use the word allay, allay. Right. I, so the words come to you as you need them. They store in a place that is cold storage until you, for some reason, your, your brain starts heating up, melts the cold storage and words flop down out of the cold storage that you never knew you knew that's an always a thing that surprises me i didn't know i knew that word yeah it's it's all I up even, there i, in I even bank. know how to spell it yeah <laughs> I, I felt good as an overweight guy when i read about the shadow i thought hey i got a lot of shadow by the that's way good. i'm going to talk to you about your overweight before you leave every time i read about it you're cutting years off your life Mm-hmm. And it's and it, when you find out there is a way to do it that makes sense, it's unbelievable. I mean, I'm watching. I just happened to see Maria Osmond. She was like this, and she. And th- there are so many ways to do it, but you got to do it because you're cutting out years of your life, and you you obviously got a lot of work to do yet. I know, I do. Do, do you think about? I try all the time. I just enrolled in another eating disorder program. It's okay, a, it's a but, constant battle for me. Well, keep at it, and th- and think in terms of smaller portions and fish and chicken instead of and forget about this steaks and chops. Just throw them out, and 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 no butter. You know, all that, throw them. And there are things that are satisfying. You know, the sherbets instead of ice cream. You know, and things like that. I knew you were going to bring this up when I came in here because you fixed the guy's hair. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, this is very, right, right. Yeah, but you, and I'm so, and you're I'm, a fixer up guy. And I wouldn't say it to anybody, but you really have a, a, a purpose, a really purpose, a purpose on earth that I, and, and I'm very, uh, I applaud. I think it's wonderful what you're doing, the stuff you're doing. And I'd like you to continue to do it longer than you want to do it. <laughs> Longer than you know, longer than you're primed to do it. All right, better better than longer than you want to do it. Then yeah. I'm just going to be doing it for a bunch of years. I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you, and I'm not kidding. And 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 I'm I've learned it. By the way, accidentally I learned that if you cut down the portions, because I have to cut down portions because I had this endoscopy where there had something in my stomach that was almost did me in. Uh, it's it, I, it's very satisfying eating portions. Small portions, eating it slowly, and have two or three, four or five times a day, but small portions like this instead of this. Maybe we'll do a follow-up interview and I'll be in better shape. Okay. Maybe I could be the next Neil Simon. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I feel like uh, there's a magic to to when you save people. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about work ethic because even when it comes to Twitter, you talk about how you set aside 10 minutes before you go to sleep to write tweets. Yeah. So... How did you develop such a good work ethic? I don't know. It's it's just it, it's pleasurable. I, these are things that please me. I sit down at the computer. Uh, I look at the email. I look at the Twitter to see if I have to. I do a couple of games of solitaire, and I get to work. Or in, in, in reverse, sometimes reverse. I work and then do that after. But before I go to bed, I always play a couple of games of solitaire. Do you think that's just to keep your mind sharp? But and I re- didn't realize, it, but it does keep your mind sharp. It keeps your eyes and mind coordinated. Mm-hmm. You have to oh look at that boom boom. And I love when you have move things around. Before I go so to you, bed every night, I play this game called Rubik's Race, where you have to solve a Rubik's cube oh, very I know, quickly. Oh, that's too much. It, but, but it's the same thing. It's yeah, just, yeah, it is. That's it's just a, something to keep. A, absolutely, but it, it's also mind hand coordination. Because you're on a you're on a keyboard and you're looking at, yeah that. And I figured out when I play the game before I go to sleep, I have much more vivid dreams. <laughs> do you do you get strong dreams when you? Sometimes, yeah, yeah, not all, not every time. And I wish I did because I go to a psychiatrist once a week, and last week I didn't have any dream. 
Do you do you remember your dreams? I put them down if I don't. You yeah, write them down? Yeah, if you don't write them down, you know, I forget them. I have three quotes here from Maimonides, and that's the end of the show. Okay, okay. yeah. Do not consider it proof just because it is written in books for a liar who will deceive with his tongue will not hesitate to do the same with his pen. So he's saying, in other oh, words... Oh, yeah, well, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and today, Maimonides would have to say about television and as soon as you read that i'm reading i'm seeing the fox network yeah they come up with things and they tell you they're true and they're not sure they can they they can present the same idea in different yeah. mediums and you'll believe it more or less based on how you right. see it so Maimonides would be very 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 active today if he were on television I think if he, if he was around now, you'd probably go see him, if only for the medical. He was a doctor as well. I know, Rambam. I love that name, Rambam. I, like, I, I told Kylie I'd love to name a kid Rambam. It's a, Rambam. It's a good, strong <laughs> it's name. It's giving him a, giving him a big a responsibility. Yeah. I think uh, on, on, his, on his grave site, it said, From Moses to Moses, there was no one like Moses. <laughs> so, uh, from Mo so I was just watching the... What's the name of the Moses picture? That Ten Commandments? Ten Commandments. Mel and I were finished watching it last night. What a piece of I mean, extraordinary work as far as the technical things in it. Yeah. The, the artwork and the unbelievable, but the story, you know, is just silly. I'm surprised nobody's remade it. You can't not. You can never redo it like that. Oh, my God. The, uh, the, it's, the, it's the most elaborately structured piece of uh, filmmaking ever i mean the the sets alone and the, uh, the the props i've never seen anything like it it's worth looking at what attracted you to directing films so i wrote a couple of films a couple of films that were directed by people and i watched the film and i said oh why did he do that why did he do that why did he why did he go close up on the head it's a two shot you want to see the guy reacting you don't want to cut to the reaction you want the audience to look and laugh you cut to the reaction you're saying laugh they won't laugh if you do that right i was i so it was somebody directed a couple of the first films i wrote and i said i better direct so when i wrote the the uh, screenplay of a of a book uh central laughing mm -hmm. i decided i would i would direct it just so i would be able to protect protect the script that's why i edit the show myself this yeah, show I, yeah absolutely I, exactly right I, yeah and editing is the even i think well, editing is is almost as perform as important if not more than the writing or the performance you, you do it in your writing you edit all the time you're right and uh, no that editing is the uh, the final polish that nobody can I think a bad editor can destroy a great film. There's no yeah. such thing a bad editor. You get rid of that guy. <laughs> is there a secret to show business? I'm sure you've been asked before, but is the to me? It's, Tell the truth. It's very abstract. The whole. I mean, the business. I don't. Oh. You know, I come out. I just moved out from New York not long ago, and so Hollywood to me, it's just this big monster that I don't understand. But you've known it for your whole life. What? Well, it, what is it? What do you? Well, show business? Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, I love it. It's, first of all, there's some of the nicest, wonderful people here. When you laugh, you have a good, your product, is, is, you enjoy it as you make your product. You know, what other product do you make over and over again that you enjoy? Because you never make it over and over again. You're making something new each time. You're on a belt line making automobiles, you're making fenders, you're making fenders, same thing. But in, a, in show business, you're making new things all the time. Do you think uh, you'll direct another movie? No. You get of an age. It's Directing a movie is a f two things. It's social directing. It's keeping everybody happy on the set and right. being there uh, for, uh, 12 hours a day and then going into the editing room. No, I, it takes a, I think I stopped directing him when I was in my 80s or something. It's too taxing. Oh, it is taxing. I don't think there's any 90-year-old directors. You talk about in this book all the character actors that are forgotten, and then you find out that they died, and it makes you happy that they had a family. And Yeah, well, yeah. Like, for instance, little known, I just happened to read the obits, and I'm reading about a, a little known 
you know, and I read the movies in a lot of movies because some of these actors little small parts in a lot of movies. And then at the end, you see he had a good life. He had a wife and children with it. Never made it as a star, but he obviously had a star life as a husband and father. But it doesn't tell you on the obituary how many days he walked around the house full of anxiety and fear. <laughs> no, no, that <laughs> everybody has that. Do you? Anxiety, I have sure. Really? Well, at this age, you wonder how and when you're going to go. You know, you don't want you don't want to go hitting your head on the ground. Why? <laughs> Why does it matter? It, it doesn't matter, but, oh, you don't want to go in a hospital. That's what I would, I said, don't, if I have to go to a hospital, give me a... So what, what, what's the trick to stay young and keep going? Is it just... Have something you can get up for. I get up for and I tell you, I, I have my tip. If I didn't have the computer to go to, I don't know what I would get up for. Watch television. Jeopardy is fun, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, not enough. I was so excited to wake up today. I love days when I when I can't wait to wake up, just because I got to do this today. Oh, that's nice to hear. This makes it a, yeah. a, a special day. It, it was marked on my calendar. and Well, I had two things that I did today. I got new hearing aids. Wonderful Ooh, hearing Without aids. the mic. Well, that's another thing. You take your hearing aid out at night, and it's so quiet. Mm -hmm. It's very quiet. Well, that's I, good. You, at least you get sound sleep. Men's hearing goes earlier than women's for some reason. I don't know why. Say but, it again? But, <laughs> At times the truth shines so brilliantly that we perceive it as clear as day. Our nature and habit then draw a veil over our perception, and we return to a darkness almost as dense as before. What do you make That's of that? people who are so involved with themselves that they can't accept the pleasures that are happening to them on the, from the outside, like a clear day, a beautiful day. Yeah. When, you're, when your burdens are heavy... The clear day doesn't it seem to do much, except make them seem heavier. Well, that goes back to the anxiety what we were talking. Yeah, about. right. How do you alleviate the anxiety? What what's what works best to clear your mind? Zopatan. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Zopatan. Well, that's one of my that's one of my things that I laugh at so much when they give these new drugs and it's do not take if do not take <laughs> this drug if you are prone to sleep. Eight hours a day, eat food, go to the toilet, and breathe air, and drink water when you're thirsty. If you have any of those symptoms, this will kill you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Here's, here's the last quote from Maimonides. He says, you must accept the truth from whatever source it comes. You must accept the truth. Of course. Why not? Yeah, I don't think you needed to tell me yeah, that. Yeah, sometimes the truth will come from a, a child who doesn't know he's, he's, he's come up with something. <laughs> Sometimes they, they have a clearer perception of the yeah. world than because uh, they haven't they haven't been fed enough lies. Yeah, or they. Do you it, think that's what it is? Could be, or they may be forced to taste the water that is brackish and say, "This water brackish." I have some lines that I'll I'll close on about memories. Go ahead. To plug the books, I remember me, and I just remembered. And uh, the new one, I, I, I what I, what I had forgotten, what I had almost forgotten. Here's a few from a bunch of different philosophers. We each need to make peace with our own memories. We have all done things that make us flinch. And that's Surya Das. Memory is a child walking along a seashore. You never can tell what small pebble it will pick up and store away amongst its treasured things. And that's Pierce Harris. Everybody needs his memories. They keep the wolf of insignificance from the door. That's Saul Bellow. He was nice. He was good. Memory itself is an internal rumor. That's George Santayana. 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 Every man's memory is his private literature. That's Aldous Huxley. That's that? beautiful. Uh, that is, that is absolutely perfect for me, isn't it? I better put that down. Jesus, because if that isn't what I'm doing. Yeah. Mel was pointing out that I'm all I write about is uh, is my own life. Boy, is that I'm you know, I may use that in the in the front of my book I use my own I quote myself. Yeah. And from a book I the, the first my anecdotal life, I quoted myself 
from my anecdotal life. I wrote it in the book, and I said, I'm looking for a quote like this. Couldn't find one, so I used, I said, there's a good quote on page 37. So I quoted myself, which nobody's ever done. <laughs> so, but this one now, now, memory is his private, geez, that's great. And it's really true. I think we're just a compilation of our memories and how we perceive them anyway, right. you know? Private literature by that, Aldous. A-L-D-U-S, huh? Yeah, A-L-D-O-U-S. O-U-S. Huxley. X-U-X. You know, I did an audition for a comedy festival, and they asked me, this is a few years ago, they didn't get a sense of who I was from my act, <laughs> my old act. Oh. And they said, uh, well, we, we thought you were very funny, but we didn't really get a sense of who you are. And I realize now I should have told them, I'm a compilation of all my memories and how I perceived them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so who we all are, right? That's what makes you, you, and me, me. Absolutely. So. No question about it. And, and because you can do that, people say, oh, that's just like me. And you know something? Now that I have all your memories in my memory. Yes, yeah, it's your memory. Now, now in some way you and I are alike. Exactly. That's interesting. And then the last one here is, the past is never dead, it is not even past. And that's William Faulkner. Faulkner, he's good too. Yeah. Past so. is never dead if somebody remembers it. That's the show, Carl. Thank you so much for doing it, and I appreciate you having me here and taking the time. This is it? You mean we're finished? I haven't even started to tell you things that I've been thinking all week. Oh, dear. Can you come back tomorrow? I, oh, this is so disappointing. Did, did I sing you my, uh, my Scottish? I didn't even sing you my Scottish song. Well, you gave me an Irish song. All right. Forget it. Forget it. I'm very disappointed. Very disappointed. <laughs> Thanks so much, Carl. I bet you never got one of those. No, that was a great sign-off. <laughs> a master of ceremonies and sign-offs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah.